Okay, we have come to the end of the good news. Not that the good news has ended, but we're finishing the study tonight, I promise. Barring a volcano or an earthquake or some other divine intervention, Lord willing, this is it. And we are on page 48 of the study notes. And as you can see, 49 is the last page, so we don't have a whole lot more to do here. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us good news. You've given us hope, Lord. We live in a world that's hopeless. People are desperate. People are groping in the dark, trying to find answers, trying to find their way. And you have revealed yourself to us as the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, O oh God, for the good news of Jesus. Thank you for the simple gospel that Jesus came, he died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day in victory. And we celebrate that victory tonight, O oh God. Lord, that you were declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And Lord, we pray that in coming days and weeks you would open doors for this message to be shared. You would prepare hearts to receive the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Bless all those here tonight and those listening. Let the word of God quicken us. Let it bring fresh hope and new life to each and every one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. All right. I like that Redskins t-shirt. You're, you're in the right place. <laughs> okay, we are finishing up the last section of our study of the gospel, and your assignment after tonight is to begin to share the gospel with all creation. That's not my assignment. Jesus gave us that assignment. So this is the news. The news is to be shared with every creature. And we are looking at what I believe is the best part of the gospel. Not that any one part is better than another, but we can talk about atonement, we can talk about healing, we can talk about deliverance, but as we have shared repeatedly, 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen, Paul said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So we can have atonement, we can have deliverance from alcoholism or drug addiction, those are things that God does for us in this life. We can have his peace. We can have his joy. We can have so many blessings right now in this, in this life. I don't know about you, but since I came to Christ almost 40 years ago, I've had many blessings in this world. But Paul says if that's the limit of your vision, you are to be pitied more than anyone because you've missed the real and ultimate goal of the gospel which is beyond this world, beyond this life, it's on the other side. And so we are finishing up this final section, the good news of eternal life and heavenly hope. Thank God we have hope. Thank God there's something more than this world. I don't know about you, but uh, the world is crumbling. It is just crumbling before our very eyes. Governments, institutions, banks, it's all coming down. And I'm not making that up. The Bible has promised that everything in this world is going to pass away. So if our hope 
is in this world, our hope is going to be shaken. And if we have somehow thought that this world is going to be our Savior, our Rescuer, our Deliverer, we're going to be greatly disappointed. On page 48, we want to begin here at section 3. A heavenly vision changes our values and our whole perspective on life. You know, you can tell just from spending a short amount of time with a person what their real worldview is, what their perspective is, what things are important to them, and what things really don't seem to matter too much. And sadly, a lot of the things we've been sharing in this study, when you share them with people, you can tell they're not interested. They don't care. Heaven? Who cares? Salvation? Ah, I don't have time for that. You know, I had a really uh, difficult bit of news that I discovered uh, on Sunday afternoon. I met an old friend of mine who used to live on my block. And there were, there were actually four of us who were all the same age. We all grew up on the same street. We went to high school together. We went to college together. And unfortunately, we did a lot of bad things together. And then I was the first one to get saved. And my next door neighbor, I had witnessed to him. And he was kind of like, eh, it's good for you. I'm a good Catholic. I'll stay a Catholic the rest of my life. But several months later, he literally showed up at my front door one morning at 4 a.m. and he was ready to get saved. And he got saved and he has continued to go on with the Lord. Uh, sadly, one of the others in the group I had witnessed to, he became a staunch Jehovah's Witness. And he visited me a couple of months ago and he is still in that after so many years. And actually there were five of us all together and I met another one of them uh, just up the street on Sunday. I had not met him in probably 35, 40 years. And, you know, we were on our way out, so I didn't have much time to talk and, you know, just exchanged hellos and all that. And in passing, I asked him about the fifth guy, because nobody seemed to have known anything about him, and he also lived right around the corner. He looked down at the ground, and he got real quiet, and he said, uh, he's no longer with us. And I was like, what? He said, yeah, he committed suicide. Really hit me hard. And I, I preached to this to this guy. I really shared Christ with him after I got saved. And it was kind of like, well, if it works for you, fine. But I got a lot of partying to do, man. And he became an alcoholic. And I understand he battled for years with depression and finally ended it. So the vision that you have in your life is going to determine your whole perspective. And if we don't have a hope of something beyond this world, I, I tell you, you are going to get depressed. And I can understand why people want to commit suicide. Because if this world is all there is, man, forget it. What a waste of time. We bust our heads and go through all the heartaches, and in the end we're just going to die and become dust again if there's nothing beyond the grave. Well, thank God there is. And you're going to see in some of these scriptures tonight that the pain and the sufferings that we all go through in this life, they suddenly take on meaning, and they actually have purpose in light of eternity. If you can't see eternity, it just seems like an overwhelming flood of pain and sorrow. But as we'll see in some of Paul's writings, 
sufferings have a purpose in view of heaven and eternity. Let's begin here in Hebrews 11, verse 10, and then from verse 13 to 16. We touched on this a little bit last time. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, father, son, and grandson, they all adopted the same lifestyle because of a vision that they had. Listen carefully. For he, that's Abraham, was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He's talking about the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. All these people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And listen to this. They admitted that they were aliens and strangers. Where? On earth. Aliens and strangers on earth. You see, when you have a vision of another country, this isn't home. You're a stranger here. And sadly, too many Christians have become real friendly with earth. They like earth. They call earth home. When what God is really wanting to work into our hearts is we're just pilgrims and strangers. We're passing through. This is not our home. We don't belong to this world. We belong to another kingdom. And it goes on to say, people who say such things, namely that they're aliens and strangers on earth, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Looking for a country. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, what, Panama, Costa Rica, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, nope. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, a heavenly one. Therefore, pay pay close attention to that word, therefore. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You see, when you have a vision of a heavenly life, a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly city, a heavenly country, suddenly everything here on the earth isn't so important. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to sound spiritual or anything, but God is bringing me to a place more and more where I do the things that I have to do. I mean, I take out the trash, I vacuum the carpet, I eat my breakfast, and all of that. But to be very honest with you, this place, it, it really doesn't interest me that much. And I'm getting more and more excited about the place where I'm preparing to go. And this world just has lost its attraction. And people can talk about, oh, I'm saving up for my new BMW. Go for it, man. I really don't care. As long as I have something that gets me from point A to point B, I don't care. Oh, I want a, you know, million dollar house with 80 rooms in it. I don't because I don't want to clean them. I don't want to worry about the plumbing breaking in 18 or 20 different bathrooms and calling Fonchi every night of the week. So this affects the way we live, the vision that we have. And it goes further 
in Hebrews, remember Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. Faith is actually the ability to see things unseen. This is crazy, this next passage. It talks about seeing him who's invisible. Now, you know, when you start seeing invisible people, they call those guys in the white coats, and they strap you down and they take you away, right? Well, Moses apparently needed to be strapped down because he was seeing invisible people. Hebrews eleven twenty four to 27. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, and I want you to notice how this vision affected the choices and the decisions he was making in life. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had it made, man. He was growing up in Pharaoh's palace. He was next in line for the throne. What did he choose? He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Now, come on, let's be real. When's the last time you saw somebody choosing suffering? Choosing. Excuse me. Choosing abuse. Choosing rejection. Choosing to be mistreated when they had it all being handed to them on a silver platter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value, notice the word value, than all the treasures of Egypt. I mentioned at the beginning of this section, a heavenly vision changes our values. Why did he do this? Why does he regard disgrace and mistreatment as something to be esteemed above pleasure and treasures? Come on, everybody in the world today, all they want is pleasure and treasure. They'll do anything for it. They'll lie, cheat, kill, steal, defraud. They'll do anything to get money and pleasure. Here's a guy... Here's a guy who has it all, and he's choosing something else. It says, because. Here's the reason. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. We talked last time about heavenly rewards. There are earthly rewards. They're very short-lived. There are also heavenly rewards. He was looking for heavenly rewards. And listen to verse 27. By faith he left Egypt... Not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Wow. We need to see invisible things. And when we do, it's going to change our whole perspective. We will find our decision-making, the choices we make are totally different. And the things that we once valued suddenly don't have any value. And the things that most people disregard suddenly become highly esteemed to us. Look in the next scripture, 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Come on, John, that's extreme. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, 
and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. If you study verse 16 carefully, that pretty well summarizes the total lifestyle of 90% of all the people living in this country. Their every waking moment is devoted to satisfying the cravings of their sinful flesh, the lust of their eyes, and they go around boasting about what they have and what they do. Oh, I have a $850,000 house. What do you have? I have 12 cars. How many do you have? Oh, I'm the president and the CEO of such and such and such and such. I've got 150 employees under me. What do you do? Oh, well, I just sit at home and read my Bible and pray. What's wrong with you, man? Totally different vision. Verse 17, the world and its desires pass away. You see, the only way your perspective will change is when you really get a revelation about that phrase. If you realize everything down here is going to pass away, why am I putting so much energy and effort into things that are going to go up in smoke? When there is something that's going to endure, something that will last. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Next scripture also talks about the fact that the world is going to pass away. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning with verse 29. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. He's not telling you to go out and get a divorce. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. And here's what makes all this have some meaning. For the world in its present form is passing away. He's not saying you're not going to go to the store and buy something. He's not saying it's wrong to be married or to mourn or to be happy or any of those things. He's just saying all that needs to be tempered with a vision, a heavenly vision that also includes the fact that this earthly world as we know it is very, very short-lived. <clears throat> Notice how this revelation, this perspective, affected Paul's choices in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 11. For whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Notice how his whole value system has changed. Certain things that were once valuable aren't, and some things that maybe meant nothing to him before have now become of surpassing value. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow 
to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is a man that's either completely insane or he knows something that the average person doesn't. He has seen something that most people haven't seen. And it so affected his, his value system, his whole perspective, that everything got turned upside down. Things that he once thought were supreme in life, he says, I now count them as rubbish. Actually, the word in Greek is a stronger word. King James, I think, gets it closer. Dung. That's really the word. He considered them as rubbish, trash, something to be thrown away. And now, instead, he wants to know Christ. He wants to win Christ. This is the goal of his entire life. I mentioned earlier that sufferings in this life suddenly take on meaning in view of eternity and this heavenly hope. Paul writes about this in a number of his letters. Look in Romans 8, for instance, verse 17 and 18. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Notice that. If we share in his sufferings, we will share in his glory. Now follow verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now let's just take the worst case scenario. Let's say you live to be a hundred. And all hundred years of your life, all you know is pain, sorrow, and suffering. Let me tell you something. There are some people that really have a tough life. I mean, they just go from blow to blow, and their their whole life seems to be a nightmare. Let's let's suppose the worst. You live long, and it's a hundred years of pain and suffering. How does that compare with 10,000 years of total bliss? Perfect pleasure. No more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. But it isn't 10,000 years. It isn't 10 million. It's forever and ever and ever and ever. And so when you have this eternal heavenly vision, suddenly a hundred years of prison, beatings, suffering, rejection, it's like a moment. It's just a moment. And that's how he puts it in the next scripture. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 17 and 18. And by the way, Paul gives his resume for ministry later on in 2 Corinthians 11. He lists how many times he was beaten, shipwrecked, (laughs) in prison, starving, fasting, cold, no clothes on his back, and bearing the burden of all the churches. That was his resume. So this man knew what it was to suffer. But look at the words he uses here. Our light and momentary troubles. I don't even know how many years Paul spent in prison, but it was a number of years. We'd be there, Oh, woe is me. How many years must I be in this prison, pining away? My whole life is wasting. Paul says, it's just a moment. No matter how many times they beat me with rods, it's, it's light. It's light and momentary trouble. Only someone with a vision of eternity, can say that. For our light and momentary troubles, and they're not in vain, 
Notice the next words. They are achieving something. They are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, I don't want to make anybody <clears throat> feel bad, but what percentage of this day did you spend looking at and thinking about things that are seen? And what percentage of your day was spent looking at invisible things that are eternal and unseen? I mean, that's the reality. We live in a real world, and if we're not careful, we get sucked into the world system. And we're looking at all the things that are seen. The Holy Spirit has to keep reminding us. If you see it with your physical eyes, it means it's going to pass away. <laughs> it's temporary. And yet, we give these things so much attention, and they trouble us so much. Paul says, that's eh, light, momentary trouble. And they're achieving something for us that far outweighs the sufferings and the troubles. It's the eternal weight of God's glory. The next scripture definitely sounds like a crazy man. Philippians 1, verse 21 to 24. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is a terrible loss. Right? To die is gain? If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. <laughs> he wasn't sure. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So Paul says, I'll rough it out a little longer just so I can help you guys and maybe bring some more souls into the kingdom of God. But my real desire is to exit this place and to be with him. And really, that should be the mindset that we all have. It's not that we're suicidal. It's not that, you know, we don't understand we have responsibilities and things to do while we're here on this earth. But let me tell you something. Once we're done with our assignment from God on this earth, get me out of here, Lord, quickly. I want to finish my assignment. I want to be able to say like Paul, I finished my race. I did all the things God assigned me to do. Now I'm ready. And he came to that place later on in his life. He knew it was time for him to depart. And, you know, when a believer passes from this life into eternity, of course we're sad. We feel the loss. But man, if we're a believer and we know they're a believer... What joy fills our heart as well, knowing where they've gone. Back to Hebrews, chapter 10, starting with verse 32. The writer says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. So he's remem remembering when they first got converted. So after you received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. They got saved, and then they went through real severe persecution and suffering. But they stood their ground. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison, and here's a toughie, 
you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property? Oh, come on. Don't you dare touch my computer. Get your hands off my camera and know you cannot have my car. <laughs> they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. I'll never forget years ago, I was ministering up in Boston and we finished the service and one of the elders from the church wanted the ministers to all come to his house for coffee after the meeting. So, you know, we were all high in spirits, you know, we had a nice meeting and everybody's rejoicing. We get to his house and thieves have broken into his house and stolen everything. I mean, just ransacked the house. TV, everything gone. Just completely wiped out the house. And I watched that brother very carefully and it was genuine. He and his wife got down on the floor and they just began to rejoice. Say, thank you, Jesus. We praise you, Lord. You gave and you took it away. <laughs> Blessed be the name of the Lord. I would have been cursing and if I get my hands on that guy, man, I'm going to kill him. But these people had a vision. Because of their vision, they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked because it answers the question. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Do we know about our possessions? If all we think we have is computers, cameras, cars, houses, and stuff, then yes, when somebody tries to take that stuff away from us, we're going to freak out. But if we know we have better and lasting possessions in heaven, eh, who cares? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. You win some, you lose some. Verse 35, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly, what? Rewarded. There's that word. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. We read last time in Revelation 22, when he comes, his reward is with him. In Matthew 16, verses 24 to 27, Jesus said to his disciples, <clears throat> If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he will what? He will reward each person according to what he has done. I think we need to really reflect on these things and pray that God would increase, make more clear our vision of these eternal possessions, these eternal rewards, this heavenly hope that was so real to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, the Apostle Paul, and others. Um, I'll be honest with you, at times in my Christian life, it's been very real. And at other times, it seems to kind of fade. And whenever it fades, I get into trouble. Whenever I start to lose that, that 
heavenly vision, then the things of earth start to look more attractive again. And I start to put more of my attention. Oh, I need that Jaguar. I need a new car. Why? Because I just saw it on the TV commercial. And, you know, if you watch commercials on TV, they're all designed. I, they must know First John 2, verse 15, about the lust of the eyes and all that. They know because they appeal to that very part of man. You need this. It'll make you better looking, more popular. You'll have more guys or more girls. You'll get rich and you'll be famous. And all that boasting and the pride of life, and it's all right there. And the only way to counteract that is to have a heavenly vision. To keep your eyes fixed on things above, not on things of this earth. Look at that scripture again. I think we looked at it last week. But go to Colossians chapter 3, I think it is. Here you see very clearly this dichotomy. We've got a choice between two different worlds. Colossians 3, I think we all understand there is an earthly world. Things we see, we can touch and handle. The physical realm, it's very real. What we need to see is the other realm, which is just as real. The only problem is it's invisible. Colossians 3, beginning with verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Notice there are things above. There are things down here, but there are also things above. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Earthly things, heavenly things. Things down here, and things above. God help us to set our affections, our vision, our whole value on those things that are above. And to conclude, let's look at a couple more scriptures. Two of them are found in the book of Romans. And all these talk about the importance of hope, hope in our life. Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. It says, we also rejoice in our what? Sufferings. That's crazy. Nobody rejoices in sufferings, do they? Only if they have a hope. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces. We read in 2 Corinthians, all these troubles are achieving something. So they're not in vain, they're not random, they're not just crazy, strange things that happen to us. They're, they're coming with a purpose. They're producing something. They're achieving something. I don't like the way it feels, but I'm going to enjoy the end result. The suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Romans 15:13, it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow 
with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God help us to overflow with hope. And there's only one way that's going to happen. That's if you know the God of hope. And finally, Hebrews 6 talks about hope being an anchor for our soul. Hebrews 6 from verse 18. It is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of what? Take hold of hope. We who have fled to take hold of hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He's talking about the, the picture of the tabernacle. Remember, there were three places in the tabernacle, the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place. Jesus has now gone into the most holy place. And it says, this hope is in there. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. I think everybody understands the whole metaphor of an anchor. Wherever the anchor is attached, and as long as that rope or tether is connecting you to the anchor, let the winds blow, let the seas roar, I don't care what happens, you're not moving. And that's the, the idea that the Apostle is trying to communicate to us. When we have hope of an eternal place in the kingdom of God, that wherever Jesus is, that's where we're going to be, that's going to anchor our life. And when the stock market goes up and down and bird flu or whatever kind of flu or next plague comes rolling in, it doesn't affect us because we know where we're going. We're anchored there. And you see a lot of people in the world today, they're not anchored to anything. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know whether they're coming or going. They're like this. Everything's changing all the time because they don't have any real moorings. They don't have any foundation, any real solid place to stand. This hope that is offered to us through the gospel, it brings stability into our life. And God never, never, never promises in the good news of the gospel that we won't suffer. I'm sorry to break that news to you at the end here, but he doesn't. Matter of fact, he says all are going to suffer. Many will be our trials and tribulations, but it will be with a purpose and we have a destination. And this anchor, it goes beyond this world, beyond this life, beyond this existence. And so, death and the grave is not the end of the story. It's really the beginning. That's why Paul was saying, for me to die is gain, because then I cross over to my real life. Once my work is done here, then I sit forever and ever and ever in the glorious presence of my Savior. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. This world offers pleasure. Sin offers pleasure. I think we all understand that. But how long does it last? Very short. Very, very short. Why not start focusing on pleasures that are going to last forever? 
And it may mean denying ourselves a few pleasures down here. But meanwhile, we'll be full of joy as we anticipate the realization of that hope. And I do believe, like one of these scriptures said, time is short. Time is short. The clock is ticking. Um, we have just a little bit of time left. And one way or another, whether death comes knocking at our door, or if the trumpet sounds and Jesus calls up the church midair, either way, I don't think we have a whole lot longer. And we need to really pray that God can make these things more real to us. And that's why he's given us the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit reveals to us things that eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, wildest imaginations have never dreamt of the things that God has prepared for those that love him. We'll close in prayer, and then if you have questions or comments, we have a little bit of time for that. Father, I thank you, I thank you, I thank you that you've given us good news. Thank you, Lord, for the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the news. He is the good news. And Lord, I thank you for the atonement, the healing, the deliverance that he brings into our lives. I thank you for the good news of the kingdom of God, that, Lord, you want to establish your reign, your kingdom, your government in our lives now and prepare us for an eternal kingdom, eternal life, and eternal joy in your presence. Father, I ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten us. Give us a clear vision of the invisible things of God. Help us to see him who is invisible. Help us to place more and more emphasis on the lasting possessions, the things that are of real value and not the things of this earth that are so fleeting and temporal. God, I thank you and praise you for this word. Let it minister to our hearts. Let it be our meditation. And God, keep bringing back to our minds the importance of setting our affection on things above and not running after the things of this earth. Bless each one here and all those listening. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.